Hey there, it's me, Malika. Today, I'm handing over the microphone to my Al Jazeera colleague, Josh Rushing. Enjoy, and I'll be back soon. I remember being in a meeting in spring of 2011 with Sheryl Sandberg, who's the chief operating officer of Facebook. She was basically happy to take credit for the role that Facebook had played in the Arab Spring, putting her hand on her chest. And she was proud to just say Facebook had essentially enabled this revolution to happen. For people around the world and the Middle East, social media was how we consumed the 2011 uprisings. It was liberation technology putting power in the hands of the people. I remember one of my first tweets back then was February 11th, the day that Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak resigned. And I wrote, the world changed today. What's changed 10 years after the Arab Spring could fill a month of episodes? What we're looking at today is what changed on social media. The Egyptian revolution made history because of the internet. People seem somewhat amazed that they're able to see such a momentous event essentially unfolding live on their own computers. It's a Twitter revolution, of course. A hashtag revolutions, if we can name it, that are sweeping across the region. That was all 2011. To use social media in 2021, especially in the Middle East, is to navigate a maze of internet laws, surveillance, censorship, fake news, and bots. Many mini-bots. Now, Facebook is looking for ways to make political content less visible on its platform. In January, Mark Zuckerberg said, quote, people don't want politics and fighting to take over their experience on our services. So how did we get here? What changed? I'm Josh Rushing, filling in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, we're talking to two people who work closely with tech companies in Silicon Valley and activists in the Middle East. My name is Hamad Najam. I'm the executive director of SMAX. SMAX is a digital rights organization. We are based in Beirut. We focus on the intersection of the internet and freedoms in the region. My name is Jillian York, and I am the Director for International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the author of the forthcoming book, Silicon Values, the Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism. Both Muhammad's work and Jillian's put them between Silicon Valley and the Middle East as the wave of uprisings began. Muhammad says when he looks back, he thinks that's when our global phone addiction really kicked off. I was thinking, since when we have this problem of like always looking at the phone and at the news? And I think it was around this period of time. I remember we used to wake in the middle of the night just to look at our phone and scroll down and scroll up and see what's happening. Jillian had been working with Egyptian activists a few months earlier to get Facebook to reverse a ban on a popular page. We are all Khalid Said, which called for protest on January 25th. During the protest, the Egyptian government targeted online platforms. It blocked Twitter on the 25th, Facebook on the 26th, and then, on the 27th, the internet went down. When Egyptian authorities shut down internet access in an effort to stifle growing anti-government protests, their actions were condemned worldwide. The funny thing about shutting down the internet is that by no means did it end the revolution because a lot of people who were at home getting information from the internet then started to go out on the street and took part in the revolution. Mostly, I think the real work that I did there was in connecting media to people who were on the ground. 
the very few people who had internet connection through that one ISP that was not shut down by the Egyptian government. Mohammed said he thought that governments were caught off guard by the way social media was used during the uprisings. Back then, it was still a place that is underdiscovered by the general audience, including the governments, including the security agencies. They did not link the internet to the activism and to a civic space. It seemed like there was so much talk about how this new social media was being used in these revolutions that it almost really got overreported that, that they were the cause of these uprisings, that it was like the, the Twitter revolution. Is that a misperception? Definitely saying that this revolution is Twitter revolution or Facebook is way beyond its limitation. I think it was people's revolution. I think there was a lot of injustice. There was a lot of unemployment. There was all the societal indicators that led people to do these kind of uprising. And social media was just there to be grabbed. There was a lot of coverage of the revolution because of social media. But it doesn't mean that social media has changed the facts that were happening on the ground. I was very wary of those narratives because what I knew of the individuals who were engaged in these revolutions is that many of them had known each other since childhood. Many of them had been organizers prior to their existence online. And so I think the idea that these networks made revolutions happen to me is not the point. The point is not even that they helped connect people, although they certainly did later on, but rather that they helped amplify and report on things that were not covered by the mainstream. And I think that really the greatest lesson from those days is how these participant journalists, citizen journalists, really are the ones who told that story and I think who will be quoted and remembered in the history books more so than any of the major outlets from the time. Jillian also said that changes to policies allowing violent content was an important factor in documenting the uprisings especially as time went on. YouTube, I think, was to me the most interesting one because of the the quickness with which they made policy decisions in response to some of these issues. They banned graphic violence from the time of launch, but then when the uprisings in Syria quickly turned into civil war, they changed their policy rapidly to ensure that documentary evidence could be shown. You know, now it's a much more difficult question for them. And I think the rise of ISIS has obviously played a role there as well. But the companies at the time, I have to give them credit for quickly recognizing the role that they played, even if in some cases they exaggerated it. In the 10 years since, how has that dynamic changed? In the 10 years since, we've seen a lot of big policy changes at these companies. And we've also seen the way that these platforms can be manipulated by both state and non-state actors in really troubling ways. It's really interesting to look back at that history because in 2008, Eric Schmidt, who was then the CEO of Google, was actually defending YouTube's right to host content from Al-Qaeda. Of course, then, you know, after that, it wasn't just Al-Qaeda, it was then ISIS and a lot of other groups from all over the world, both designated terrorists by the U.S. government and not always so. We saw a lot more um, terrorist content popping up on these platforms. And so Facebook had to sort of shift its policy in response to that and then create a policy against dangerous groups and organizations that became even more solidified with the rise of the alt-right around 2017. She pointed to several decisions in Silicon Valley that stood out for her as key moments. One was about a video that made such big news in the Middle East at the time. It's strange now that it's faded more into the background. 
A wave of violent protest is happening across the Middle East and Africa in reaction to an anti-Islam video that has been made in the United States. The angry protests against the U.S. are blamed in part on an amateur film called Innocence of Muslims, which ridicules the Prophet Muhammad. YouTube says it has now blocked the film from being shown in Egypt and Libya after the violence there. What we later found out was that the State Department, the U.S. State Department, called up YouTube and asked them to remove the video because they were concerned that it was going to create riots across the Middle East. YouTube said no, but a couple days later, they blocked the video in Egypt and Libya. And I can't stress this enough. The Egyptian government, I can't speak for Libya, but the Egyptian government did not ask for this to happen. They did not ask YouTube to take it down. YouTube actually removed it because the U.S. asked them to. And so they only took it down in those two countries. But of course, once something gets taken down by a couple of countries, all of the other countries follow. And YouTube complied selectively with these requests. So these companies started making these very politicized decisions about what was acceptable and unacceptable. That was in 2012. That was also the year that Facebook stock went public. Twitter followed suit a year later. Facebook is launching itself on the stock market, and that's going to give investors a chance to buy into the company. All eyes were on the New York Stock Exchange today as Twitter made its public debut. Energy was high, the floor was packed. And right after Facebook's IPO, they opened their first office in the Middle East, which was in the UAE. Today, it's a very exciting day for Facebook. We are delighted to announce our opening here in Dubai. And it kind of blindsided uh, us activists. None of us really expected that to happen. And shortly thereafter, they started complying a lot more with states in the region. Now, Twitter, I got a heads up along with some other groups at the time. Uh, I'm not sure I should name them, but uh, a number of us got a heads up that Twitter was probably going to open an office in the UAE. And I remember us pressuring them not to. We sent them this letter from a dozen human rights groups, both from the US and Europe, as well as from the region telling them this was a terrible idea, recommending that perhaps they consider Lebanon or Tunisia instead. But they went right ahead with their plans, and sure enough, Twitter then began complying with more repressive states as well. Mohammed remembers that time too. His organization, SMEX, had started out focusing on how to help bloggers bring their content to social media. But in 2012, they shifted their focus to digital rights, just as Facebook and Twitter were shifting their focus to the Gulf. So what should we expect from a company that should protect free speech to be based in an authoritarian regime country? Do you think that comes from a lack of understanding of the politics in the Middle East? Or do they understand the power and they're playing to it? It's a mix of things. But mainly what I think is that these tech companies, thousands of percent of their user base have increased because of all these uprisings and revolution in our region. But now they got to a point where they need to bring money to these tech companies. And to be able to do so, they need to knock on the doors of the rich people in the region. And the rich people are the people in the Gulf. From inside Silicon Valley, Jillian heard stories that she thought did indicate a lack of understanding was a problem, particularly around Saudi Arabia, around the time that Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, became an international figure. I started getting information from people inside some of the bigger tech companies and specifically from somebody at Facebook who said that when MBS visited Facebook, they rolled out the red carpet for him. They had the Saudi flag on video screens throughout the office. And one of the people who'd worked at the company also told me a story about 
when there was a, an issue, I think it might've been a data request kind of issue. One of Facebook's higher up policy folks actually said, can't we just call up a member of the Saudi parliament as if Saudi has a parliament or an operational one, let's say. And so, yeah, I think that there's a real lack of understanding, particularly at the top. I mean, I don't see why anyone would expect Mark Zuckerberg to know much about the world at all. He's never even had another job. And I think that first the Islamic State, then the election of Trump in 2016, and Duterte and Bolsonaro and Boris Johnson and all of these other right-wing leaders, I think that's really when we saw these companies start to capitulate to the right and try to play both sides a lot more than they had been previously. As tech companies were grappling with rights versus profits, Arab governments were also growing savvier at making the internet work for them. The years after the Arab uprising saw a slew of new laws that included new cybercrime and social media laws, as well as more sophisticated tools for surveillance and censorship. We have seen a lot of people going to jail because of what they wrote on social media. We have seen all these new laws that have been approved all around the region from like anti-terrorism laws that's been extended to include more online activities to the penal code, to the cybercrime laws, to the new media laws. If you follow someone on Twitter, you might be penalized for this. I think tech companies, they need to look back at what they did in the last 10 years in our region. More and more these countries, these authoritarian regime are taking the space. And we look now at Facebook, at Twitter, it's full of potential hacks. It's full of like intelligence people. It's not a safe space anymore. Mohammed also said that the growth of bots drowned out a lot of the discussion. Where hashtags had once been banners for revolution, now they were targets for spam. I, I remember friends from Yemen, they were telling me about how frustrating to use Twitter inside Yemen because every time they use Twitter to complain about the bombing of cities from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE, blaming them directly, blaming MBS, blaming all these leaders in the region. And then as soon as they have a trending hashtag, like in an hour or less, they see other kind of hashtag supporting MBS, thanking MBS. And you got like five, six different hashtags that they are actually leading the Yemeni Twitter sphere. And so every time you go to, to these hashtags, you just don't see the, the point. Like all the good content are being hidden within the timeline because you have all these spams around you. They want to control the narrative. They want to control the space. How would you like to see these social media companies change the way they interact with the region? What we want them to do is we want them to actually believe the people who work in this region. We want them to listen. Activists or advocates, let's say, in this space are actually negotiating with tech companies. Every piece, every problem they have, they try to negotiate with these tech companies. They, they try to educate them. So we try to change their decisions. But like most of the time, their decision has been already made. It's rarely that they actually change the decision. I think the problem that they need to understand these tech companies is that there's no public space here. The online space is the only space that people have access to and they can express themselves. Most of these countries, they can't work in politics. Protests are not allowed. So the online is really the only space to use for that. And that's why they need to put more resources because people need that. Unfortunately, maybe there's not enough money in that. But if they really want to support free speech, they really need to support the people behind it. With the 10 years that have passed, 
One of the most striking things is how many people have simply left the online space where they were so active in 2011. I asked Jillian what happened to most of the activists she was working with. I don't want to put anyone at more risk or more stress, but I guess what I can say there is that some of the people that I'm in touch with from Tunisia, many of them are still really engaged in politics, but some of them have just left the country and moved on. And then Egypt, of course, you've got folks who are still working really hard on this stuff. You've got folks who've found success doing other things. There's still folks who are trying their damnedest to make sure that these revolutions weren't in vain, whether they're working at research institutions in other countries or they're engaged on the ground. But you've also got folks who are spiraled into addiction and depression. And the same, of course, is true for Syria and elsewhere. So there's these stories of people who've pushed forward and are still fighting. There's, of course, this whole next generation. But there's also these tragic stories of death and imprisonment and despair. How do you describe yourself in the sense that you see yourself as a digital pessimist or optimist as you look to the future? I am a realist. I've got friends in prison still for their use of the internet. So I definitely have a realistic view. But at the same time, I'm still optimistic. And I'll tell you why. After the the Arab Spring, it was only a few short years before the Black Lives Matter movement really took hold online. But I want to be clear, that was another movement that was organized offline previously. It was always ongoing, but it really uh, took off again this summer. But just to see the, the way that a movement that had started amongst youth, really, in the United States, the way that it had picked up and taken off all over the world, blew my mind, honestly. And so I think that that's why I'm still an optimist, because it's still possible to do this. It's still possible to make things happen. The internet is not the organizing tool, but it is the tool that gets voices heard. And that's The Take. On Wednesday, we'll look at how these same tech companies played a role in the global spread of the conspiracy movement known as QAnon. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Priyanka Tilvey, Nikine Oliai, Dina Kesbe, A. Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Josh Rushing, William from Lake Bilal. Alex Rodan is the sound designer, Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>